For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, observations, questions, ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. About 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab, good bunch of uh, comments, not, not a crazy amount, but some very interesting topics to hit on this week. Plus those Apple reviews, a couple more rolled in and I didn't ask for them this week, but hey, why not? If you guys are going to leave Apple reviews with mailbag questions, I'm down. I will uh, I will try to get to them. So I guess that's a thing from now on. Let's get into it. Rome is underway. Murray and Fanini playing an epic as we speak. Eh, epic, a little strong. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call myself out there for hyperbole, but an interesting match. They're playing an interesting match. Let's get to the first comment. From your friendly GA pilot. Hi, Gil. Did you hear Daniela Hontakova's take that they watered the court in the final to slow down the ball and favor Carlitos? What are the rules on court watering exactly? And is there any merit to that thought? Thank you for the great content. Appreciate that. Yeah, I'm going to take her word for it. I don't think it's that insane a claim. And Hontakova, I believe, was on site and observed during the Struve versus Alcaraz final that they were watering the courts more than usual. Of course, it's standard operating procedure to water a clay court as to not let it get too dry. But the more you water it, the more you are slowing it down, making sure that uh, the conditions don't get too quick. It is important for a player's footing and the quality of a clay court that there is some moisture there. So it's not as if it's okay to let a clay court go completely dry. Uh, but there is a bit of a range for how much you need to water it versus how much you choose to. And I don't think, like, I'm going to trust Tontakova here. If, if she saw that, I'm not that surprised, to be completely honest. Am I upset about it? Am I? And by the way, just to answer the question, are there rules about court watering? No, I don't think so. Usually between sets, you water the court. I, I think that's pretty typical. But 
you can't be too rigid with it because sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's shady, sometimes it's actually raining, and then you definitely shouldn't water the court. So it, it kind of differs with the conditions and might differ by clay court as well. Some clay courts might respond differently or retain moisture for longer or shorter periods of time. So, no, I don't think there are any rules. Am I upset? Not really. I just can't muster any outrage for this because I have a fundamental acceptance that certain players are going to get preferential treatment when they're superstars at their home tournaments. I just, I accept that. And I know it's a little bit taboo in tennis. In other sports, we accept that the home team is going to have some advantages over the away team. In tennis, we pretend that that should not exist. That all tournaments are impartial. That there is complete neutrality and fairness among the field. And usually whenever things like this come up, when, you know, questions of fairness, uh, my stance is usually like, yep, it's unfair. That's how it is. And I try not to get too worked up over every little thing that may offer different players certain advantages because I know that they're happening all the time. And the biggest thing when it comes to tournaments is scheduling. You think that all players, when they request what courts they want to play on, what time slots they want to play in, you think that all of them have equal power? What about practice courts? That's a big deal. When you're going to practice, where you're going to practice, you think it's all equal? Do you think Carlos Alcaraz, even before Struff won a single match in Madrid, do you think Carlos Alcaraz was getting the practice court he wanted over Struff? Yeah. I was talking to a, a former pro, actually, sorry, current pro, the other day. Uh, he was telling me about massage tables. He was telling me that the massage tables at the events, sometimes there's a lot more demand than there is supply for the massage artists. That was interesting, right? So all of these things. Now, is it a little bit different when it comes to the actual court conditions? Does it strike closer to home? Sure. But also that's kind of how a clay court works where you kind of have that control. And it doesn't surprise me if the Madrid powers that be exercise that control in a way to help Alcaraz over a big serving net rusher by watering the clay courts more often. And it's probably not the first time, won't be the last time, that uh, a clay event, whether it be in South America, Spain, Italy, goes to those lengths to help a native against a more fast court oriented player in that exact way. Let's go to the next one. From Julia. Do you think JCF is a much bigger asset to Carlos's game than other coaches to their charges? Considering the expertise of high-stake game handling he brings as a former number one and slam winner, how important is that kind of expertise overall? Can a less renowned former tennis player or even a coach who has never been a professional tennis player be enough? The game becomes more and more sophisticated. I think we are in a more player-coach symbiosis stage of tennis now. Oh, is there more to that comment that I cut off? I'm not sure. Apologies if so. But I think there's plenty there as it is. First of all, I think for the most part, uh, a great coach does not have to have any prior experience at a high level of tennis or at, at a high level of coaching. 
It would be hypocritical if I took any other take. So, so maybe it's hypocritical on my end since I analyze tennis and I didn't play at a professional level. So, you know, maybe that kind of informs how I feel. But I do think I'm looking at it in a in an unbiased manner. Just in the respect that when it comes to coaching tennis, your mind is your weapon. And when it comes to playing tennis at a high level, you guys know my take on this, professional athletics as a whole. Genetics, genetics, genetics. Yeah, you have to work hard. Yeah, you have to have the right circumstances and a good head on your shoulder and you have to want it and you have to do some certain things. But a lot of it is genetics. Are you a pro athlete? Were you born with the professional athlete body? So... You know, why can't you become a great coach even if you weren't born with the body of a professional athlete? I think you can be a great coach. Now, there are certain things that can't be inherited or learned if you did not reach the levels of a Juan Carlos Ferrero. And I do think that there are levels of respect that Ferrero could kind of have uh, authority that he has almost almost built in. He doesn't need to really earn it. It's just there because of what he did on tour. So there are definitely advantages to that. And there are definitely experiential advantages. Like here's how I felt when I was in my first major final. And I am going to use that experience to inform the player who I am coaching. So there are there is definitely some of that. But I think it's a small percentage of what your job actually is as a coach. I think most of what you do as a coach is completely obtainable without that prior experience. Does that make sense? I also think I also think that it's uh, worth just addressing some of the social media buzz around Juan Carlos Ferrero recently. I saw it all over Twitter throughout Madrid. Folks either uncomfortable or upset with the amount of coaching and chatter between Alcaraz and Juan Carlos Ferrero. A lot of which I don't understand because I don't speak Spanish, but the box, the players' boxes in Madrid were very well mic'd up. And as a result, you could really hear a lot of the communications and the communications were frequent. And there was a lot of what sounded like very in-depth back and forth which included some, you know, tactical stuff. And then uh, with a return position, oftentimes you will see Alcaraz look to Ferrero and basically get the cue. And if Ferrero will tell him where to go, and he goes. And that makes some people uncomfortable. Now, I'm not going to relitigate my stance on on-court coaching, but I have been against it from the start. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about now that it's here, I think it's completely foul and completely unfair to take away credit, to criticize Juan Carlos Ferrero and Carlitos Alcaraz simply doing what is allowed of them at this point when it comes to on-court coaching. And I, I mean, it's almost, I almost don't know. Here's the the only other thing I'll add to that. When coaching was legalized, the transition was not immediate, and I think the transition is still happening to the point where when I was at the U.S. Open last year, and it was the first ever major where on-court coaching was allowed in some capacity, my big takeaway was, hey, this 
This doesn't seem that different. Everything kind of seems the same. I'm not noticing much of a difference here. And that was, I think, everybody's takeaway was at first it was hysteria, hysteria, some people for it, some people against it, big debate. And then when it actually was implemented, hey, wait a second, not much has changed here. That was the initial phase. I think that everyone was just trying to figure it out and that there was comfort in the old system and not everyone was so quick to jump into taking advantage of the new system. I think that transition is still happening. The trend is going to be, I am quite confident in being correct on this. The trend is going to be towards the Juan Carlos Ferrero gestalt, what he is already doing, which is coaching quite, uh, he's quite hands-on. He's quite, uh, he's getting involved. He's just ahead of it, I think. We're going to see much more of that. I think live analytics are going to come into play. And I knew before on-court coaching was legalized, I knew this was going to happen. And I knew that when it did happen, people were going to be uncomfortable with it. And I don't blame you if you're uncomfortable with it. But please, direct your criticism at the rule, not the individual's who are simply doing what they feel is going to, going to give them the best chance to win. That's all I have to say about that. The next one is from Geb Manini. Hey Gil, after his performance in the Madrid Open, would you say that Jan Lennard Struff is just a fluke that capitalized on a lucky draw? Or now someone to seriously consider at Rome and RG? Thanks as always for the great content. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's somewhere in the middle. Do I think that Struff is a contender to win Rome or Roland Garros? Okay, well, he's not in Rome. That's a, another conversation. The fact that he didn't get to play Rome. He would have gotten to play Rome if the qualifying started on Sunday. Because if you are in the tournament the week prior, when qualifying starts, you get a special exemption. I believe still for Masters 1000s. I think, I think they're still in place. I know for 250s, for 500s, you get a special exemption. I think it's still for Masters. But anyway, it does seem a little bit unfair that Struff doesn't get to play Rome. But at the same time, it's one of those regulatory things where it's, uh, I don't know, they would have to kind of look at what rules could be put in place to avoid this kind of situation in the future. Maybe if you make the semis or something, you, you get a special exempt into the main draw, and then you take away. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what you do. All right. Anyway, might be good for him to rest. Anyway, eh, I think it would have been better for him to play Rome. Here's the point to answer your question. Apologies for the diatribe. Madrid is Madrid. If you are a big server, if you are an offensive player, if you hit the ball flat, you're going to do better at Madrid. And it doesn't necessarily mean that Rome and Roland Garros are going to be for you. Or you are going to be able to contend as seriously at Rome and Roland Garros as you did 
in Madrid. And by the way, Struff won a couple of matches in Monte Carlo. I'm not saying he can't win a couple of matches at those other events, but is he going to do what he did in Madrid? Is he going to beat the likes of a Stefanos Tsitsipas on slow clay when he can't rain down aces and serve a bunch of unreturnables and completely overwhelm Tsitsipas's backhand return, which is what he did in that match? Can he do that on slower clay? Probably not. Certainly not as easily. So I look at Struff's result as not a fluke, not a fluke at all, because I think what he brings to the table, I've always felt this way about him. In fact, a lot of the new subscribers to the channel and the new viewers may not remember, but in, in around 2019 and 2020, Struff seemed to always be ranked between 30 and 50. And when I did my previews, you guys know about the Dark Horse, Struff would like always be the Dark Horse. Struff... Um, I think when you get like four times as the Dark Horse on the channel, you get like an honorary badge, Monday Match Analysis Dark Horse. And I think the two guys who have that right now for sure are Jan Lennard Struff and Marton Fucevic. Both of them have the Monday Match Analysis Dark Horse badge. So I've always really loved what he brings to the table and his skill set. And it's awesome. And I love it, especially on grass. And I, I think he might have a chance to stay in the top 30 here maintain that position for the next year plus, which would be great to see. Um, but, you know, so in that sense, I don't think it's a fluke. In the sense of making a Masters 1000 final on clay, yeah, I, I don't expect that to continue. And I think the conditions in Madrid have a lot to do with it. Next one is from Jack Surtees. Hello, Gil. In your time as a tennis broadcaster, have you noticed any distinctive variations in the commentating styles of American and European broadcasters? Great work as always. Jack is a member. Thank you for that. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, I think the biggest difference, there are probably more than one, but the one that comes to mind is in American broadcasting, you are taught, and it's kind of the prevailing way, to be somewhat conversational, you want to, from a vocabulary standpoint and also how you're speaking and how you're describing things, you don't want to get too flowery and poetic. You want to have that kind of, okay, how would I talk to you at the bar? How would I talk to you on the living room couch? And there is an effort, I think, in American broadcasting to to a certain extent, at least, replicate that kind of language, that kind of approach. I think European broadcasters, certainly British broadcasters, which is frankly what I'm hearing most often, they're, uh, they, they value much more a certain poetry and dramatization of the action. So I think you get much more flowery language. I, I do think you get more extreme reactions to the ebbs and flows, which quite honestly, bother me just a little bit. I, I wish that sometimes it would just be a little bit more even-keeled and realistic about 
not kind of over-dramatizing the ups and downs and the shifts and changes in a match. That being said, I, I respect the energy and the engagement that is brought to the table when you do have that kind of, I guess, when you do have those kinds of reactions and swings to a match. It, 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 it is, in a way, how you should be engaging with the match. And I would say, overall, the best is a balance. I don't think you want to be boring with your language. And I, I think you should be descriptive. But I also think there is something to be said for not getting so out there with your prose that you don't sound like a real person. And I think that's the balance. I think Americans do a much better job sounding like a person, speaking like a normal person. And I think European broadcasters probably do a better job of of using the the English language and kind of the depths of the English language to paint really uh, beautiful and, and descriptive pictures and describe things with maybe some more precision. And that also is a way to keep it interesting. Does that make sense? Let's go to the next one. It's from Road to Dawn. What do you think about FAA's season so far? Nothing has clicked even indoors. What does he need to do to turn things around? FAA is 12 and 8 this year. A couple of factors have probably hurt him. The first thing is he really had an arduous end of 2022 in just in terms of how much tennis he played. And we've seen this in the past. FAA not only played and won what? Three straight titles. Then he qualified for the tour finals. Then he played Davis Cup. So his fall, his Q4, if you want to put it that way, was a total, total slog in terms of just what it might have done to his, his body and his mental energy, his physical energy. His offseason got totally obliterated. When you play the Tour Finals and Davis Cup and you kept going deep tournament after tournament after tournament playing a busy schedule over the course of the fall. So he probably came into 2023 not as fresh as you would want to be. And then he's had that knee injury, which is why he did not play at all from Miami to Madrid. And now he needs to kind of get back on the horse without having played much in a while. And who knows if the knee was bothering him at Miami. It probably was. Indian Wells, not so sure. I actually think that was maybe his best level of the season at Indian Wells. So who knows about that? But there, there are excuses. There are excuses for FAA's poor season thus far. Just like last year, there were a lot of excuses for Medvedev. And usually I hate that word. But... In this case, I'm using it in a, in a way that I think is, is contextualizing struggles in a way that actually has a positive spin. That's what kind of, it's one of the things I was saying with Medvedev throughout last year. The good news about Medvedev losing so much is you can find reasons why. And at least for FAA thus far, now that might change as the season progresses, but at least right now, we can find a lot of good reasons for why he might be struggling. As far as what his tennis has looked like, I don't think the backhand has been good, and I don't think the second serve has been good. 
he's double faulting a lot, which is something that plagued him earlier in his career. Actually, throughout his career, it just got a lot better last year. If you look at his double fault rate for his career, 5.3%. And this year, thus far, it's at 5.8%. Last year, it was down at 4.4%. And whenever I read numbers like this, they might sound small. I just like to remind you guys, the difference between a really great player and someone who's struggling to win matches at tour level. A great player wins about 52% of the points that they play on tour, and a struggling player is winning about 48% of points that they play. So a 1% difference in double fault rate is significant. Another significant number in FAA's season is his first serves in. First serves in is 58% this year. It was at 64.6% last year. That is an enormous dip. So not making first serves, struggling on the second serve, which frankly he has throughout his career for the most part. And then when you look at his break versus hold numbers, and you if, if you ask yourself, what's, what's the problem? Is he not breaking enough or is he not holding enough? The answer is, is actually he's not breaking enough. Part of that might have to do with the surfaces that he has played on. Of course, missing... You know what? He's played one match on clay all year, so that is going to help his numbers be shifted more towards holding serve and less towards breaking serve. So there's a lot of different things going on statistically when you look at FAA. Uh, but in the full picture, his strengths haven't been good enough, which is his first serve, and his weaknesses haven't been covered up enough, which is his second serve, and his backhand, which I think more than anything is hurting his ability to win baseline rallies, hurting his ability, therefore, to break serve and win behind his second serve. Next one is an Apple review from Alex. Thanks for the kind words at the top. My question, if I remember correctly, you've stated in the past that the Fed is a weak era champion argument doesn't hold much weight for you. Given this, I'm curious to hear your take on many of the Fed videos on Gotkovich's YouTube channel. Although he is definitely a Djokovic fanboy, I do think he presents a compelling and data-driven case for Fed as a weak-era champion, especially compared to what Novak achieved over the past 15 years. All right. First of all, I saw this comment, and I did you a favor— and I watched one of these YouTube videos that you're talking about from Gokovich. Because I don't watch tennis YouTube. With all of the time in my life I spent watching tennis, plus the time I spend creating content about tennis, no way in hell I am adding to that slice of pie in my time management with watching other people on tennis YouTube. Like, no offense to... Well, no offense will be taken because I'm... I'm saying I don't watch any of it. But I watched a video for you. The argument that is being made here is that Merritt Staffen, Andy Roddick, Leighton Hewitt, who were Federer's premier rivals from 2001 to 2007, as players pale in comparison to... Andy Murray, Rafael Nadal, 
and Roger Federer, who Novak Djokovic had to battle throughout his career. That's the argument. And are there data-driven arguments for that that are extremely compelling? Of course there are, because it's true. Of course there are data-driven cases that Safin, Roddick, and Hewitt are not Murray and Nadal and Federer. Of course. That has never been my issue with the Fed is a weak era champion argument. To understand my issue with the argument, you first need to understand exactly what that is saying, what that argument is. Because if you distill the argument to let's put these players against those players, it, it's very obvious and it's easy to come away with the conclusion that that argument is correct. But that has never been my issue with the argument. What the argument is really saying at its at its core is that Federer is advantaged by being a little bit older and therefore coming up on tour earlier that he had a good window because he's because he was older my issue with that is it completely discounts a strong strong belief that i hold which is that Federer's presence were instrumental in the development of Nadal, to some extent, and to an even greater extent, Djokovic. That Federer setting the bar extremely high and holding it there for a very long time, prior to the era of Novak Djokovic's dominance and, you know, regular contendership 2011 and forward, Federer holding the bar there enabled Novak and gave Novak a target to reach and and surpass when it came to, to level and technical ability and work ethic and, and, and mental strength. All of these things. Every Everything that Novak is as a tennis player, I don't think that can be separated from the existence of Federer. And that is why in almost... Every walk of life in every sport even, let's say you are, uh, let's let's use F1. I, I, I shuffled in my head real quickly a couple of analogies I can go with. Let's do F1. You don't want to be the first to clock in your qualifying time. You want to be the last. You want to know what time you have to beat. That gives you a target. And that target is an advantage. And I know that that is a very literal example. And and this is, you know, what I'm talking about with tennis here and the arcs of the careers of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic is, is not quite as cut and dry or black and white. But I truly believe that dynamic existed and exists. Not to mention, as, as tennis modernized with string technology... I do believe that Nadal and Djokovic's play styles come the 2010s were much more of the moment. And as Federer came up in a time, you know, his game, his game got a little bit, and this was a charm for Federer. People liked this about him. I liked this about him. It was a little bit of a throwback. It's a little bit of a throwback. And there were definitely disadvantages for Roger Federer coming out of the era that he came out of uh, developmentally before he got good. I'm talking 
I'm talking 17, 18, 19-year-old Federer, who, by the way, wasn't really a world beater at the time. Coming up at that time, didn't really prepare Federer quite as well for what he would need to do in the 2010s compared to uh, Djokovic and Nadal's situations. There are nuances there that I don't think can be explained with the kind of analysis that Gotkovic YouTube channel is partaking in. Now, I also want to clarify here. I am not um, discounting the fact that Djokovic had tougher rivals to, to beat. That was definitely a disadvantage that Novak had to deal with that Roger did not. So I what I'm saying is there is truth to what Gotkovic is saying but a larger picture, which is what I am trying to come in and provide. Some more nuance and some some actual, an argument that Federer being first, Djokovic and Nadal getting to do the chasing, having the benchmark to try to reach and the puzzle, uh, the clear puzzle to try to solve, in a lot of ways was an advantage for them. Both things are true, which is why I don't believe in diminishing any of their accomplishments. I don't believe in boosting any of their accomplishments. What I believe in is taking their accomplishments, the three of them, for exactly what they are. Do not shrink Federer's numbers because of some weak era kind of thing. Do not boost Djokovic's numbers. Do not boost Federer's numbers because of the fact that he was first and because he came from a kind of a, a bygone era of a transition from string technology in the past to modern string technology where the game was played much more on the baseline with better consistency and high topspin RPM that kind of had a way of bothering Federer's one-handed backhand, which he didn't have to worry about when he was 15 and 16 and 17 years old because people weren't even playing like that. See what I'm saying? You see how complicated this stuff is? It's really complicated. So just take what they did for what they did. Next one is from Hardy. Hardy Har. Appreciate the kind words. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hey Gil, I was thinking recently about the next-gen finals and was curious about your thoughts on how successful a, pre a predictor they have been over the years for the next wave of top players. I was looking back at the crops of players for each edition, and to me, the 2018 edition seems the most impressive. Excluding the Italian wildcard, six of the seven remaining players from the draw are top 15, if not top 10 caliber players, and that was despite Zverev and Shapo withdrawing. Obviously, it's not an exact science. We have much more data on those players than the guys for, uh, from more recent years. Still, I'm wondering if there's an addition that stands out to you as the strongest and whether you have particularly high hopes for a more recent next-gen group. I'll have my eyes on the 2021 group, for example. 
Thanks as always for your great content and thoughtful analysis. Ultimately, my big takeaway from the next-gen final thing has actually just been how great a predictor it has been of future success. Especially if you look at the, the winners and the finalists, they've all been fantastic. Obviously, you had Alcaraz winning in 2021, you had uh, Sinner winning in 2019, and you had Tsitsipas winning in 2018. The, the weirder one was uh, was Chung in 2017, who, by the way, is back playing challengers. Hyun Chung update. Shout out. Shout out, Chung. We're rooting for you. Get back in there. Anyway, look, the way the next-gen finals field is calculated is just like the race, only for players who are uh, 21 and under. So... You know, it, it just so happens that players who are the best at tour level when they're 19, 20, and 21 tend to go on to do good things. That's what this has taught us. I mean, do I do I have a, a, a group that really stands out? I agree with you about the 2018 one. That was Zverev, who didn't play. Tsitsipas, Shapovalov, Dimonor, Tiafo, Fritz, Rublev, Munar, and Hercotch. Basically, all of them are top 15 guys at, at some point. Dimonor, I think, dipped his toes into the top 15. Tiafo just recently did that. Everybody except Munar. So that's pretty darn impressive. Um, last year. Last year, it's going to be interesting to see some of the guys towards the bottom end of it, because I'm I'm not so I'm not quite so sure about a lot of them. I don't know about uh, Chunshin Tseng. Sorry if I messed up that pronunciation. Uh, Dominic Stricker has big weapons. Lefty recently won a challenger title. I think he's got a lot of potential. The Italians, I'm not sure about Francesco Pissarro, Matteo Arnaldi. Uh, Luca Nardi is a young guy, who uh, a much younger one, who I, I do think has big-time potential. He just missed the cut last year. He was number nine. But Lahechka, Nakashima, Draper, Musetti, I'm high on all those guys. So generally, the next-gen uh, tournament has been just a great showcase for— a, a great showcase and an accurate representation of who is going to be in the mix in the future, which is— that was really the goal all along. So it's been a success, bona fide success. Next one is from Road to Dawn. If Nadal doesn't play the French Open, will there be an asterisk for whoever wins? No. No, there won't. You guys know, I mean, we talked a, we talked a lot about this during the pandemic. U.S. Open 2020 especially. I think there was a lot of discussion because not only did Nadal not play because of COVID and the weird scheduling. But uh, Djokovic had the, the DQ. And I said then, what I will always say, there is never an asterisk. Dominic Team, no matter what happens from here, will always retire as a major champion. To think otherwise would be so horrifically off-base, dismissive, and pathetically naive. 
what he had to go through to, to, to win that tournament was immense. That was a lifetime of hard work to reach that pinnacle. And every single major, almost every time, stuff happens. Stuff happens. The field is not full. There are injuries. Think about Zverev's broken ankle last year. Stuff happens. Stuff will continue to happen. And there will never be an asterisk. Because at the end of the day, whoever won it, won it. That's it. Um, all of these things, all of these circumstances are are accounted for. Over the course of history, you know, it, it's pretty much going to play out how it was meant to play out. You're never going to see like, hey, some dude won four majors, but really each one, something wild happened and the draw kept opening up and everybody kept getting injured and, and withdrawing. We're never going to see that. We're never, ever going to see that. I don't know. I just, I, I don't understand it. I, I've never understood it. The whole asterisk thing. Is there a single player who we look at their slam tally after they retire in in the modern era? In the open era. In the open era. And we say, yeah, they won five slams, but it's really four. And then one is asterisked. Do we ever, ever do that to any player? No. Things were funky pre-open era. You had unbelievably weak Australian open fields and you had some stuff happening with when when some players were amateur status and some players were professional status you you also had some issues with the tour being uh, completely split in half some of the fields at certain majors were for that reason like Wimbledon trying to retain I believe amateur status for a couple of years and I, I'm not perfect on this history but I know the gist of it that created complications where a lot of the best players in the world weren't able to play because they were professionals and they weren't allowed to play an amateur tournament. If you weren't aware of that, I know that sounded like I was speaking Japanese, but it's true. Stuff was stuff got pretty crazy, I think late 60s, early 70s. And that's why if you look at like Margaret Court's number, now we can have a conversation. Okay. How, you know, is that number apples to apples with Serena Williams is 23? And then and then the answer is no. If you just look into the history, understand the circumstance of not one of her titles or two or three or four of her titles, her whole career. Just understand the circumstance of her entire career and how tennis was at the time. And you understand why her number is not a very good comparison with Serena's number, but anything open era, there's never been an asterisk next to any slam ever. As far as I'm concerned. Next one is from Tuck. Another nice review. Thank you. You've mentioned how players thrive or struggle in certain situations, even on the same surface. How does the clay season compare amongst itself? Madrid may favor big servers more than other clay courts, for example. Uh, what players do you see doing well in one tournament and not in another? Are some players just great on all clay surfaces regardless? 
Is the short grass season similar in that aspect? A lot of questions. Answer as you see fit. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a quick crash course of how I look at the clay court season. Monte Carlo, couple things. First of all, the players who put more time and effort in on clay in February tend to have a larger advantage at Monte Carlo than at the other tournaments. Because it is extremely slow and windy, I think the players who defend really well, keep the ball in the court, and kind of are willing to grind a good amount, I think they tend to do pretty well at Monte Carlo. And those really kind of pure clay court players. Madrid is your server's clay court tournament. Offensive. You know, if you're offensive, you if you hit a flat ball, I touched on a lot of that stuff when I was talking about Struff earlier in the mailbag. Uh, Madrid is a clay court tournament where those players thrive. And then Rome is more similar to Monte Carlo than it is Madrid. But I do think at Rome, some of the more hardcourt-oriented guys, especially the top players at this point, are just a little bit sharper on their ball striking and their movement. And also, if, if you're a top, top player... You are also uh, locked in at this point, really, uh, because of the calendar spot. You're gearing up for a major, and in, in that way, you're uh, very, very much engaged mentally in Rome. So you're going to see a lot less upsets, usually uh, less chaos than you might see from time to time at Monte Carlo. That's kind of your crash course. Next one is from Will. Hi, Gil. I'm from Australia. And I'm in year 10 at high school, and I'm quite interested in looking forward to a career opportunity of sports journalism in tennis and analyzing the game like you do. I was wondering what lessons you learned and the process of you becoming what you are today. Thank you for all your work. I'm trying to think if there's a video I've done in, my, in the past that kind of goes into more detail on this. Um, maybe the mailbags that I did in the offseason where I, I didn't allow any tennis questions might that you know there might be some topics that I delved into that could be of interest to you but the biggest thing is uh that I've always said is consistency managing kind of what life brings and the the commitments the other commitments that you may have in life and just trying to whatever you do commit to in this space stick with it for a long time and that doesn't mean if you're unhappy with things slug it out or, you know, don't, don't change it or don't get out of there and try something else. It, it's not, it's not about happiness. So I want to be very, very clear. It's just about, it's just about making sure to not sell yourself short and to commit to something for a long period of time. And the origins of this channel, this is kind of the experiential thing that I will, I will use to paint this picture. I could have stopped doing YouTube. I started doing YouTube initially because I had an internship at a radio station and that radio station went under. It shut down completely. And uh, before I went to college, I still wanted an outlet so that I could work on my craft, that I could talk about sports, that I could give my opinions, and I could you know, continue to work on my on-air skills and whatnot. Even though this radio station, which was putting me on air, had shut down. So that's why I started a YouTube account uh, or a YouTube channel initially. And then I go to college and I have all of these different new time commitments. 
I'm, I have class, I have social life, and I'm also trying to involve myself at the radio station there, the TV station there. I'm trying to call games. I'm trying to uh, do studio shows and, and all of these things. I mean, it's a grind. Like where I went to school at, at Syracuse, there are tons and tons and tons of students who are going there to be a sports broadcaster. It's the number one school in the country to try to be a sports broadcaster. And as a result, it's it's very competitive and people are very dedicated and you have to spend a lot of time commitment. So I had to design something that was going to work for me. And that is where the Monday match analysis idea came from. It was... I don't have time to continue to monitor some of the other sports that I do enjoy talking about. I don't quite have the expertise there, but I do enjoy talking about that. But you know what? Forget it. I don't have the time to do that. Let's scrap it. I don't have the time to necessarily book guests and do a tennis podcast where every week I am interviewing someone. Because that requires much too much coordination with booking and getting on the same page with people. Forget that. I need to design a show that I know I can do. Well, I know that I have some free time usually on, on Sunday. I know that the men's final is on Sunday. And if I just focus on doing a deep dive breakdown of the men's final every week, that is something I can stick with for a long time and I can keep it going and see where it goes from there. So the most important thing that I did was to understand the circumstances in my life and to design something that I could commit to long-term and something that I was going to uh, be able to really, uh, really be in for the long haul. That's all. There are a couple of different directions I could have taken that, obviously, but that's kind of the advice that I'll offer right now. From John, last one, we'll end on this. Hey, Gil, what makes Stan more effective against Novak compared to Stan versus Roger and Rafa? Also, do you think Stan's level in the 2015 French Open final was just too good for Novak, no matter how he played? Or do you think that another version of Novak could have won? I mean, look, I'm not going to... As far as the 2015 thing, Stan played out of his mind. And 2015 was one of the pantheon years for Djokovic's career. So I'm going to say no. That was Stan's match... Stands to win. That level was as high as it needed to be to beat any Novak Djokovic. I'm going to go with that. Let's let's not, you know, I don't think we have to go further with that. But you ask, uh, and I, I wanted to answer this question. It did get nine likes, so there was a lot of interest in it. But also, we could get a Vavrinka-Djokovic match in Rome. The thing is with Novak is... He's not as much of a disruptor when it comes to baseline variety that I think Nadal and Federer are. And when it comes to Stan, I think Stan is also, he's a rhythm player. He loves the ball in his strike zone. He doesn't respond quite as well when the ball is out of his strike zone. And when you're mixing spin and pace, you can just kind of bother his ball striking a lot more than oftentimes Djokovic was able to do. I just don't think, I think Novak 
allowed Stan to get too comfortable from the back of the court when it came to not mixing up enough pace and not mixing up, up enough spin. And for most guys, that is, you know, Djokovic, that doesn't hurt Novak against most guys because most guys do not have the power and the consistency that Vavrinka has to uh, hit through Novak. Even when Djokovic is keeping the ball deep in the court like he always does. And that was one thing that stood out to me. Like when Djokovic was trading backhand to backhand or forehand to forehand for Vavrinka, Stan could take a quality trade deep in the court and with Vavrinka's power and strength and his court position, where he would usually hang back about, you know, five, seven feet behind the baseline. The depth didn't bother him at all. And he could just get in, kind of work work himself into a rhythm against Novak constantly, and he would just catch fire. He'd have great timing. And with great timing, he could just utilize his brilliant power off of both wings to the best of his capabilities. I think Nadal is just using width a little bit better, using the width of the court to bother Stan's movement, using the heavy topspin, more loopy, more height to kind of get to Vavrinka's backhand in more interesting ways. Obviously, you know, Roger is going to constantly be doing different things to give Stan different looks, serve and volley against his block return, uh, plenty of slice backhand. Um, drop shots. I just, I never felt like Novak, it's not a, a mistake that Novak made tactically. It's just really who Novak is as a player. And it's the same thing that Stan is as a player. They just kind of like to play in rhythm. And sometimes Djokovic just wouldn't break up that rhythm enough. And that really allowed Vavrinka to thrive. And I think that's my, that's my read on it. Djokovic was pretty good against Vavrinka in best of three. It was really just in best of five. Vavrinka just played incredibly well in a couple of matches, even some that that Djokovic was able to win. In fact, one of the one of those matches that I think we forget about is uh, U.S. Open, I think 2013. Vavrinka played a great match against Novak. Novak happened to win that one, but I, I thought that was a moment for Vavrinka, very similar to team's loss against Nadal at the U.S. Open in 2018. That might have been a moment for Vavrinka where he realized how how good he could be and what he was capable of in big events, in big matches. And we've talked about this already. Stan, when he gets the adrenaline pumping and he's in a big stadium at a major, he just he just takes it up a notch. And Djokovic was certainly a victim of that in some of those big matches in majors. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.